no one actually cares what you say, which is a radical thought for most CEOs. No one cares. You have to push your message up through the organization, which means that everybody above you in the organization has to understand what you're saying. So it has to be pretty simple, convicting. They have to internalize that message as being of value to them. And then they have to move it on. Welcome to the Leading Transformational Change Podcast. Our passion is to help you lead and develop organizations with a remarkably healthy culture that can positively impact all of its stakeholders. Every other Thursday, we drop hour-long conversations with world-leading researchers and experts on culture, ethics, change, and leadership. My name is Tobias Dursson, and I'm your host and the co-founder of Art Management. How do you lead culture change in an organization with hundreds of thousands of employees? My team and I couldn't be more excited about today's episode. One of the questions we're often asked by HR and ethics professionals is how to get their CEO and other senior executives to take more intentional ownership of their role in the culture and in the success or failure of any culture initiative. While CEOs carry great responsibility for the strategic direction and financial performance or other KPIs in the public and nonprofit sectors, there can sometimes be a lack of understanding of the significance of a healthy culture to drive that strategy and to ensure that company values are not just virtue signals, but actual business priorities. I interviewed Frank in 2018 for the book, and then recently I was beyond excited to get a chance to sit down with Frank again and record a conversation for all of you in our podcast audience. The Home Depot had a very successful run during Frank's tenure. He was named a top 50 CEO, according to Glassdoor, and the company's market capitalization grew from 50 billion to 125 billion. Frank left his role at the Home Depot in 2014. He has degrees from Harvard and Columbia, has served as the Deputy Secretary for the U.S. Department of Energy, and he is the current chairman on the board of Delta Airlines. He is also the host of Crazy Good Turns, a podcast that celebrates people who do amazing things for others. One of my favorite parts of the conversation was talking about how incentives matter and why senior leaders need to absorb complexity, deal with values, dilemmas, and conflicting goals, and not push them off on their employees, which is something we see all too much. We also discuss what it means to lead from an inverted triangle and put concepts like servant or humble leadership into practice, even though Frank is the first to say that he didn't at all get it right all of the time. So without further ado, let's jump into my conversation with Frank Blake. Frank, it's really a privilege to have you on the podcast today. Terrific to be here. Thank you. So I've been super excited and really looking forward to our conversation. I've had a conversation with you in 2018, and I found it just incredibly insightful. And, and I think it's so good as well for our audience to hear from the CEO perspective as we think about building healthy cultures in our organization. So, so I'm, I'm just in a healthy, healthy inner life. So, so really, really excited about this conversation. And you led a remarkable culture change journey at the Home Depot, which we're going to talk a lot about. But before we go into that journey, I would just like our listeners to get a bit introduced to you. Can you Tell us a bit about yourself and your journey before you became the CEO of one of the world's largest corporations. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll just talk about myself from a professional perspective. Uh, and I think it's fair to say uh, no one, including myself, would have thought I'd end up as the CEO of the Home Depot. I'm a lawyer by training. I uh, 
worked for a number of years in Washington, D.C., worked for George Bush father when he was vice president, uh, started a small law firm that grew to quite a significant size, and uh, was general counsel of the United States Environmental Protection Agency, then uh, headed out to work at GE. Uh, I took a dramatic turn in my career and decided to leave Washington and uh, went to GE to be the general counsel of their power systems division. It makes you know large equipment for power plants, gas turbines, steam turbines, things like that. I did that for several years and then um, transfer transitioned from the legal position to a business job and ended up uh, reporting directly to Jack Welch, at, who was then the CEO of GE. And I did all of the mergers and acquisitions and strategic planning for GE for Jack Welch. Then when he stepped down as CEO, uh, because I knew the Bushes, I was the Deputy Secretary of Energy at the Department in the United States government. Uh, one of the people who did not uh, win in the succession race for Jack Welch's job was someone I had worked for at GE, Bob Nardelli. He was running Home Depot at the time. He asked me to join Home Depot. I did. Uh, then in uh, the last day, literally of 2006, the board of directors of Home Depot decided to go in a different direction than Bob and asked me to be the CEO. Uh, and I then became CEO. I will say that I said to the board when I got the call uh, on December 31st uh, that they should take some time to reflect on it, that I probably wasn't the right person to be running Home Depot because my background really wasn't a retail background. Uh, my background was uh, buying companies and selling companies. Um, and that's what I've been doing at Home Depot as well as GE on the business side. So that's a compressed, but very unlikely, right? I mean, I'd never run a large organization. I run a lot of, uh, you know, I've done a lot of deals, but those are small groups of people. And yeah, uh, unlikely choice and was viewed as an unlikely. No one expected. And I mean, we're we're gonna go into that that journey. And I, I find it so so interesting, just I mean, with, with your legal background, and I think it's true, I mean, meeting uh quite a, a number of, of CEOs in, in my work, I think I mean quite many of them have uh, a legal background or financial background. Maybe financial is the most kind of uh common or consultant management consultant background. And and I also think uh, even as we, we turn into the story of what's happened at, at the Home Depot, that it's not necessarily that the things that you did in your leadership were perhaps not necessarily the things that are expected based on your background and based on kind of where you had spent your your career. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. I mean, uh, as I said, uh, I said to the board, uh, they should spend some time thinking about whether they wanted to whether I was the right person, and I needed to as well. Uh, I needed, this was so out of um, my career path that it required some reflection on my part on whether I could do the job. And we're going to focus in on on the Home Depot and, and talk a little bit about that company. And the Home Depot has, I think, a very interesting story. I mean, they were dreamed up by entrepreneurs Arthur Blank and... Bernie Marcus at a coffee shop in 1978. And I think from early on, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think the company put a high value on skilled store associates who enjoyed offering excellent customer experiences. I think people like that were like plumbers and, and carpenters and so on. And I know that Arthur Blake said in an interview that the culture was everything that separated us from all the competition we had. Could you talk a little bit about what kind of signified the culture at the Home Depot in the early days? Yeah, so Tobias, great point. Uh, you know, both Bernie Marcus and Arthur Blank, who founded the company, one of the things that's notable is that they had just both been fired from another hardware store where they've been leading another hardware, <clears throat> hardware store. And they had a very 
clear idea of what a great experience would be. And it was around customer service, around knowledgeable associates, but also about great price at the right quantities. But culturally also, I think because of the experience of having been fired and these were, you know, they were in their middle age, these were middle-aged folks, uh, a much more open culture and much more interested in the development potential of folks who others might not have seen a lot of potential in. And that's truly one of the, one of the cornerstones of Home Depot is people would come in who were, you know, they, they didn't go to college. Uh, they would start as a cashier or you, you know, chasing down uh, shopping carts in the lot and rise to positions of real significance within the company because they were willing to work hard and apply themselves. And it was very egalitarian, a very egalitarian mindset and entrepreneurial, as you say, Tobias. Yeah, and I, I think uh, that, that they uh, kind of really gave the sales associates a lot of freedom, a lot of freedom in terms of, of serving the customers, making decisions, and also re really that sense of ownership. There's a there's an interesting saying at Home Depot of if you've seen one Home Depot store, you've seen one Home Depot store. So every Home Depot store, the store managers were allowed to kind of do their own particular thing. Uh, and that was very much a part of the culture of the business. And I think, I mean, and, and of course, there, there's so much if, if, if our listeners would go in and, and Google uh, on the Home Depot. And I think the the orange apron cult, because that's a bit what it's it's been called, this idea of associates wearing orange April, uh, aprons with with badges uh, for and, and where and, and, and where it says, like, we I put customers first. First. Yeah. Yeah. Very much. uh, uh very much a company led from the floor of the store rather than from headquarters. And in fact, the headquarters at Home Depot is called the store support center. And its purpose is not to be a grand headquarters. And it's an interesting building here in Atlanta, Georgia, where I'm sitting, because it does not have Home Depot on the, you would not know the building is a Home Depot building. Because, again, part of the culture was the significance is not in the headquarters building. One of the first things Bernie Marcus said to me when I became CEO, I, I learned so much from him. But one of the first things he said to me was, just remember that you hold a prominent job at Home Depot because people like Tobias will come and talk to you. But you don't hold a significant job. The only significant jobs at Home Depot are the jobs that help customers. Pretty, pretty important perspective. And I, I love that uh, idea of the the support center. And I, I think it's it's been said about Sears, about the company Sears, that kind of when they built the Sears Tower, there was kind of this this uh, part of of breaking apart the culture because suddenly you you put put you create this exclusive headquarters and you create this distance in a sense. Great, great comparison. Yep. You could probably, I mean, that's an interesting point. Probably if you went and you needed to identify a turning point in Sears's history, it was probably when they built the Sears Tower. Great, great point. So the Home Depot grew incredibly rapidly from two stores to many hundreds of stores. I think it's now over 2,000 stores. And, and today, I think it's in three countries. And at the time you became CEO, I think it was about 350,000 employees, which, which is mind-boggling in that sense. And in the years 2000, uh, Bob Nardelli, who I think was your, your friend and colleague who brought you into the Home Depot, he was brought in from General Electric as the new CEO. And as, as far as I understood, uh, so I think they were looking at this company and as you said, kind of have, having that had this, this uh, in, in a sense, homegrown culture and, and structure. And as you said, stores would look very different from each other and so on. And I think they saw that there was a need of to professionalize management and put more 
processes in in place and so on, which which there there probably was. But I think what also happened during this time, and and we're we're not 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 here to 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 criticize Bob, but but just to to understand and and learn from from the story. And I think that that the company. And and probably there were a lot of changes that were very needed, but but as I understand it, the company also began to shift away from some of its original cultural values and priorities. Could you say something about what what you, as you reflect on it, kind of what started to happen? Yeah, I first Tobias, I I agree with every comment that you made there. That's um, uh, there were a lot of things that needed to happen, but there were changes in the culture that were a problem. I'll give a I'll give a small example, and I think the the larger story of Home Depot is an interesting story of, of you know a culture that can be very successful in one place. GE, for example, is not so good in another circumstance. Home Depot, for example, and that was truly what was happening was a clash of these cultures. The way I would describe it is. Um, in a manufacturing facility, you know, if I'm looking at this pencil that I have in my hand, in a manufacturing facility, uh, I, as the customer of this pencil, really, I don't know if the people in the factory who made this pencil were in a good mood when they made the pencil or in a bad mood. And it doesn't really impact my experience of the pencil. It is completely different in retail, particularly bricks and mortar retail which is still the dominant, you know, internet's hugely important, but bricks and mortar still is most of the sales of retail. When you go into a retail store, you will know and feel, does that associate in the store, is that associate feeling recognized and, you know, enjoys working there or are they angry and, or just disaffected? Uh, and that impacts your experience in the store. That impacts how much you buy in the store. That impacts whether you want to go back to the store. How you are treated in the store is enormously important. And when you think about customer service in a store, customer service actually starts with how you treat your associates. You can't expect an associate or an employee. We call our employees associates, but you can't expect an associate to provide great customer service if the associate doesn't feel like he or she works in a great company that cares about them. And that was one of the cultural elements that started to get lost in the Hope Depot was just that sense of the floor associate of the company wants me to succeed and cares about me. Uh, and there are lots of small examples in that and larger examples, but uh, that would be my general description of it. And I mean, in, in 2005, the company plummeted from having been uh, at the top of the American Consumer Satisfaction Index to an all-time low. And at the same time, the company was being outperformed by its main rival Lowe's and in 2007, Bob was ousted as the, as the CEO, and they chose to bring you in. And as you've, you've said, you were, uh, in your mind, you were not, not the first choice, or, or, you, or I would say you, you perhaps was the first choice, but you were not a natural choice. No, definitely not a natural choice. I was surprised. I think everybody in the company was surprised. No one knew who I was. That was a surprise. And I think our investors were, I know our investors were surprised. You can read the press around the time. And that was, uh, everybody said, well, why would you pick, why would you pick this former lawyer with a GE background, uh, not a lot of retail experience? Why would you, why would you pick him to run Home Depot? One of the first things that you were tasked with, that's you, became where was announced the CEO of the Home Depot was recording a speech to the whole company. Could you talk about that speech and I think a bit of the epiphany that you had around it? Yeah, so yeah, this is this is uh, uh, a strange, a strange way to an epiphany. But um, so set the scene. So quite unexpectedly, I am named CEO of the Home Depot. 
I mean, very unexpectedly, I'm named CEO of the Home Depot. At the time, uh, my son, he actually still works at Home Depot, but my son was the store manager at Home Depot. Home Depot has a program where returning military vets can get a job and, uh, you know, work in a store and develop in a store. And my son had uh, done a tour of duty in Iraq and he had come back and he was working and he started working in Colorado, et cetera. And then he got his first store to be a store manager in Wilmington, North Carolina. Anyway, so I call him up and I, and I said, oh, and just the other part is like a lot of other retailers, Home Depot has a, a TVs in all of its break rooms where they send in company messages and, you know, the associates try to turn off the TVs or switch the channels. And we try to prevent that from happening. And that's, you know, common across all retail. So I'm supposed to get on and talk as the new CEO to these 350,000 people who don't know who I am. And this is, you know, sort of a signature thing to start my time as CEO of the Home Depot. So I give my son a call and I said, uh, you know, I just got named CEO and he laughed. He thought I was joking. And I said, no, 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 this is Bill. I'm, I just got named CEO and he still thought I was joking. And finally I said, no, seriously, CEO. And he says, okay. And, and he said, good luck. And I said, well, can you help me? Cause I've got to go on this broadcast and talk to our associates. What do you think they want to hear? And I said, and he said, um, well, actually, excuse me. Um, actually, I have no idea, uh, but I can tell you how I start every store meeting, his store meetings. Every week he'd have a store meeting. I said, how do you do it? He said, I take the book that was written by Bernie Marcus and Arthur Blank called Built from Scratch, which is the story of Home Depot's creation and development. He said, I read from the book. And so I said, that's a great idea. That's what I want to do. Reestablish the culture. I'm going to read from this book. And so I'm searching madly through the book for something appropriate to lead with. And there's a section in there on the inverted pyramid, where the CEO is at the bottom of the org organization, the customer and the frontline associates are at the top. And I thought, that's perfect. That's what I'm going to lead with. Uh, because it's very different than the atmosphere that's here now. It sounds right to me. And plus, you know, boy, this is, I admit, I thought this was great. So I did. And to be honest, Tobias, I hadn't given it a lot of thought. It was not an epiphany. This is brilliant. It was just, this works. It's a good intro message. Because of the way kind of companies are, that sort of took a life of its own. People referenced back to that and said, this is, yeah, this is great that we're here. And then for the next eight years, uh, I really, it became a very much an intentional part of how I thought about leading the company. What does it actually mean when you say, I mean, you know, there's a nice, you know, that's humble, that's servant leadership and all that. But what does it actually mean? What do you do differently when you think about, I've got to lead this organization from the bottom of the pyramid rather than from top. I learned just an enormous amount from the eight years of thinking about what that meant. And it wasn't an individual epiphany. It was eight years of, wow, this is different. You got to approach things differently if you're true to that thought process. Could you say just something that is different? Sure, sure. Lots. So I'll give you my, here's a high level, just a few of them. The first is, the, the first is just if you, if you imagine the inverted pyramid, just uh, the visual of it, the CEO. So I, I'm, I'm always interested when I hear leaders talk and they talk about a message cascading down to an organization. And the first thing you realize when you invert the pyramid is gravity is not your friend. Nothing cascades down. No one actually cares what you say, which is a radical thought for most CEOs. No one cares. 
you have to push your message up through the organization, which means that everybody above you in the organization has to understand what you're saying. So it has to be pretty simple and, you know, convicting. They have to internalize that message as being of value to them. And then they have to move it on. Your message moves through an organization through osmosis, a completely different communication process that has, in my mind, dramatic consequences in terms of how you lead an organization. I'll just give you one example. So what I realized, what I grew to understand was if I want an associate on the floor of the store to understand what it is that the CEO wants him or her to do, the single best thing I can do, the single most powerful thing I can do is tell a story around the examples of what it is I want them to do and recognize and celebrate those folks who are doing it. And I spent an enormous amount of time just focused on recognizing and celebrating people who, in my view, were doing the right thing in the company and having those messages as simple as possible. And I am, I, of all the leadership principles that I think I learned from the time at Home Depot, the one that I think is the most important is every business leader, every leader of every kind sort of understands that you get what you measure, right? If you're not measuring it, you can't get it. Okay, I that's true. And measure, you know, there's a lot of complexity in that, but there's an even more important corollary, which is you get what you celebrate. If I walk into an organization and I go, what do you celebrate? What is it that you recognize and literally or figuratively pull up on the podium, you know, on the stage with you? That tells me about what your how what your organization is about and how you work. And I can I I could go on and on on this, but so the communication is different in an inverted pyramid. The listening is completely different because you understand when you invert the pyramid that also no one wants to tell you what's going on. I mean, it's not in their interest. And leaders vastly overestimate the extent to which they actually understand what's going on in their organization, unless they make an incredible effort to keep in touch with the front line and the parts of the organization that are, you know, three levels removed from them. It's also, uh, it has, um, you know, I, I could, as I say, I can go on and on. You invert the pyramid and you understand everything's uphill. This is a lot of work. You, you know, if you're out, if you're out playing golf, you're missing what you need to do because everything is uphill. And when you're sitting on top, if you if you imagine your role as being on top of the organization, you know, you're not understanding how much you have to move. There's a lot that there's a lot that goes into it. That is super, super helpful, Frank. And and I want to dig into some of those things. And and you talked about that one of these things is that you don't actually really know what is going on within the organization. And and I, I, I see that time and time again. And and we talked about with the example of the Sears Tower and so on, how easy it is to get disconnected and just assume something about our culture, something about our organization. You were very intentional or you became very intentional about getting a broader picture. Uh, and, and we've already talked a bit about what, why that was important. But how did you go about that in an organization with 350,000 employees? First off, I think there is a skill to asking questions. So, um, and, and again, this, uh, I learned this over time. So I'll give a simple example. So if, if I walk into a store and I ask the store manager or whoever it is in the store, how's everything going? If that's my question, how's everything going? The right answer, and this is true in every bureaucracy on the face of the earth. The right answer to that question is, everything's going great, boss. You're wonderful. Please leave. That is the right answer, and everybody knows it's the right answer. So your question can't be, 
how's everything going? Too many people ask, how's everything going? And then somebody says, great. And they then conclude that everything's going great. No, that's not how it works. My, so just as a, in the particulars, it, you need to think about how you ask questions to actually pull out what's actually going on. So I have a number of hacks for doing that that I developed. One was I would always say for whatever big project we were working on that was relevant to whatever the store or part of the organization, I would also always say, um, gee, why do you think Project X isn't going well? Now, I wouldn't have a clue how Project X was doing. I had no idea. But people would take that question and go, you know, he must know that there's something not going right. If I say everything's great, he's going to think I'm not clued in. So I'm going to tell him what I think is not going well. And you actually learn. Now, every once in a while, somebody would say, why do you say that? It's going great. But that was not much. That was maybe 10% of the time. Usually it would be, well, it could be a lot better if. And so it's a much more interactive question. Always, in my view, always ask kind of when you're really interested in something, ask a question on a scale of one to 10. How's this interview going, Tobias, on a scale of one to 10? Odds are you're going to give an answer that's short of 10. You're going to say, oh, you know, Frank, this is a good interview. It's a good solid eight. But that's an opportunity for me to say, okay, well, Tobias, you know, what would it have to be to be a 10? What's it missing? So you get a way to engage in what people are actually thinking and show that you're interested in what they're actually thinking beyond just saying, how's everything going? And then, you know, there's no, obviously, uh, you, you just have to spend time connecting with people who are at levels, you know, removed from you, whether in the retail case, the people on the floor of the store, or the people who work in the IT department, two levels down, you know, the skip level lunches, skip level meetings. Um, you, you have to be relentless about doing that because for most organizations, very few organizations, and this is goes back to the Jack Welch comment, very few organizations internalize that candor is a good path for success. I, I, I think that's exceptionally unusual. Most organizations go, am I better off telling the boss what I really think, or am I better off giving a pretty rosy answer? And usually it veers to the rosy answer. That is so incredibly helpful. And I think there's so much to, to unpack in that. And I, I know that you also, that you spent a lot of time, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, out in the stores, actually helping out in the stores, being there. Could you talk a little bit? Because I'm just thinking when you are, when you are the CEO of, of 350,000 people, there are so many things that are picking at your attention. And and I, even in as a CEO or senior leader of a much smaller organization, there 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 are so many things. And you have your investors, and you have uh, your your. Uh, other senior leaders and all the division leaders or whatever that is that that report to you and everyone wants your time and so so what did that look like for you to kind of spend time out in the stores and 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 how did you make that a priority with this type of schedule that you had yeah control i mean i'd say control of your calendar is the most important thing anyone does whether a leader or you know tell me what you spend your time on and that helps define who you are. So be careful about your calendar. I, and, you know, that's a difficult thing to do as, uh, you know, as you progress through an organization, people control your calendar, but as much as possible, control your calendar and have the open space to do what you really think is value added. In my case, what I really thought was value added for me was talking to customers, talking to associates, talking to our vendors, talking to people down in the organization. Um, I had a board member who had a great phrase. It's, you know, now you have to adapt it for online. But, you know, his comment was all truth is found on the floor of the store. 
And uh, my son's version of that, because I had the benefit of a son who was, you know, working in stores. My son's version of that was always, uh, and mind you, Home Depot is based in Atlanta. He would always say, well, dad, I'm sure that briefed well in Atlanta. And, you know, no one intentionally comes up with bad ideas and bad programs. It's just they don't, they aren't fully engaged with what the needs of the people are who are in front of the customers. And that goes back to Bernie's comment, the most significant people are the people who are helping the customers. I think as you had these conversations out in the organization, I think you started to realizing that there were certain things that were missing, that there was a disconnect between what mattered to kind of the hearts of the people out in the stores. And and and, and I mean, not just whatever they wanted, but in terms of, of serving the customers, doing the mission of the company well, and, and, and what the company actually valued. And I think that, that so many times when, when organizations kind of see a need of shifting something about their culture, we, we make a list of 20 different things <laughs> that we're going after, but there's not this focus. And I think in lack of focus, it is very, very hard to actually make sure that our messaging, that our the signals that go out, that our incentives are aligned and all of that. How did you kind of come to a place, and especially with this large organization of, of really knowing this is what we're going to focus on celebrating? The focus part was the easier part. So it was easy to say, and every retailer says it, I'm going to focus on customer service. The hard part and what required the you know level of engagement is and here's my phrase on this I, I doesn't i doesn't originate with me i don't know who said this but i grasped it and it's true that what organizations need to do is absorb complexity up and push simplicity down and the example for this is it's really easy in the C-suite, in the leadership team to say customer service. That's what we're about. But then you go to the store and you see, and this is just my retail example, but then you go to the store and you go, why aren't these people with the customer? Well, they're not with the customer because they're developing the plans that we need to have to prevent theft in the store. And the thing that we are measured on is what's our shrink level in the store what's our theft level in the store what blah 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 blah, blah. and then the so so they get this message from on high customer service but what they're actually held accountable for is a bunch of other things that have nothing to do really with customer service the leaders have to decide i'm willing to put up with a higher level of shrink or a higher level of inefficiency in the store in order to get the customer service. That's what makes it simple. What makes it simple is as you remove, you absorb that risk to yourself, you said, I've now figured out what level I can deal with and then push down what, what you actually want them to do. But I see too many times leaders who think they've made their business really simple. But in fact, all they've done is push all the difficult trade-offs and decision-making down into their organization. They actually haven't removed any complexity. They've increased complexity. This is so, so good, Frank, and, and so, so incredibly important. And I think it's how leaders, how, how we ask leaders so often kind of lose our integrity. And it's also, I think, why so many times when leaders and co or companies talk about values, most people within the organization think, I mean, this is just like, this doesn't mean anything. And, and, and it even has like, it even has a negative effect on the organization because it teaches it. And there's a, actually a, a friend, Ron Carucci has, has done research on what leads to kind of a culture of honesty or dishonesty. He's even found that it leads to dishonesty in the organization because we say, say that what should be sacrosanct, our values, are the things that we're very willing to compromise. Exactly. No, exactly, Tobias. And 
there are it's 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 so much around the leaders need to make the trade-offs because because it's so easy to have those well phrased values and then every day you're cutting against those values you you say to the employees we want you to take care of the customer and then when the employee gives a discount because something's not there or it's broken or whatever it is you ding them well how does that work I take care of the customer, but I'm not going to do it if it costs anybody anything. That's just doesn't, that just doesn't work. You want, in fact, uh, you know, you want it to the point where actually the, the associates start, you know, saying, gosh, you know, I don't know this. I, I could do this for the customer. I could do this. I have this power to do this. But I'm not sure I want it. I, you know, I'm not sure the customer service requires me to go that far. Far better to be there than the other place, which is I'd like to be able to take care of this customer, but I can't possibly. And I and I think as well that, like you say, we don't absorb the complexity, we don't absorb the dilemmas, and so many times we even don't want to hear about them. Right. <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. And the people who are telling you, "Hey, there's a conflict here," you brush them away. Just go make it work. And, and I think that's where we come to this place of values as this tool of, yeah, just, just like this inspirational thing that should just kind of create these fusty feelings instead of something that actually helps us talk about the straight trade-offs, talk about the dilemmas, talk about where goals are conflicting. I, I 110%. And then when you have that, and that's, and you know, I mean, in my view of the world, that is that is what the leadership team does because it's very hard. You don't want that done kind of willy-nilly. You want those trade-offs to be thoughtful in promotion of the overall objectives of the business. Uh, but you gotta you gotta face into them. You gotta face into what the trade-offs are. You can't pretend that there aren't trade-offs. And too many times. Uh, you know, you see these quote unquote values based companies. And I look and I say, well, actually, I know that's nonsense. And I know, just as you say, Tobias, the, the people who work in that company know it's nonsense. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Frank. And, I, and you, of course, we, we've talked about the importance of incentives and how uh, and, and the importance about talking about the dilemmas. And you also began a rather unusual process to encourage excellent customer service personally to 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 really celebrate in a, in a personal way as the CEO the behavior that you thought matters could you talk about that well there were lots of them uh, probably the one that I talk about the most but there were lots of others was we actually had a process of because I do believe so much in the recognition and celebration element of establishing a business uh, so every Sunday, I would spend half a day writing personal notes to associates who'd done great customer service. And it also came with a $50 award and a personal note for me. And it was important. We had a process. The store would say, here's a great example of customer service in the store. That would go to the district. The district would send it into the region. The region would send its you know, top 20 or whatever they were to me. And then I would write about 200 notes a week. And they would all, it was very important to me that they were specific. So it would be Tobias, I heard that you did blah, 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 blah with an associate. You're awesome. Thank you so much, Frank. And the point of doing that, I mean, gosh, there were so many points of doing that because people go, gosh, that was a lot of time to spend writing those notes. But first, it made me feel better. To be honest, I've, you know, I felt sort of encouraged about this. This, These are great stories. We were doing great things for customers. Second, I think, and this is true whether you got 350,000 people or three people working for you. When someone takes the time to say job well done, uh, there's just all kinds of positive ripples that come from that. Just the fact that I'm being recognized I go, my, my 
version of this was particularly at the start, we'd have associates on the floor of the stores. I, I have no clue who Frank Blake is. I got no clue who this guy is. But he just wrote me a personal note saying I'm doing a good job. I'm kind of invested in his success because, you know, he can't be a complete moron because he realized I did something good. And so you start building a buy-in to yourself. I mean, so that's sort of cynical, but I believe it's true. And I think you just, as a, that story, everybody else goes, well, I do that. And you start building up encouragement for people to come forward with the great things they're doing. And it sort of reinforces itself. And then there's finally, I just think, um, I remember early on, I was walking a store and I've been doing this for a while. And somebody comes up to me and says, hey, I got a note from you. Uh, thank you so much. Would you mind writing it again and sending it to me again? And I said, well, why? And he said, well, because we all sat around, looked at the note and figured you couldn't possibly have written this, that it had to have been RoboPen. So we put it under water and the ink ran and we destroyed the note. Would you mind sending it again? <laughs> and I, I think people, people want a piece of you in a way. Um, it's what's behind all the photos that we take. It's behind all human relations that there is a, there's a, if, if someone's taking the time with me, I feel I, that is a positive thing in a large company or in a small company or in anything in a family. I mean, we just don't do it enough. We don't say, Hey, you did this. This was great. And once that happens, how much more likely are you to do it again? I think dramatically more likely. And that was just one example. We did lots of other stuff like that. I, I, um, because I honestly think it's um, one of my favorite things was in addition to the notes, when I'd walk a store and you do the inevitable selfie, you know, I'd say here, Tell, I'd say to the store manager, who are the two associates that we should recognize and celebrate? We bring two associates up and I'd make the store manager say, I need you to describe in detail what this person has done that's so great. It was great for the store manager because he or she would have to actually say in front of all the associates, this is why this person's awesome. That was wonderful. And then I would say, uh, thank you very much. Let's take a photo. I'm putting my I'm putting this photo on the wall of my office in Atlanta. Anytime you or your family come by in Atlanta and you want to see your photo on my wall, you're welcome. Some of the most emotional, best times where truly people would bring their family up and see the photo on the wall of my office. And it was it, it's uh, when to bring this back full cycle when I was struggling with am I going to do this job or not the best advice I got from was from my wife because I was going through all the things where I was just sing, singularly unprepared for this and she said well just remember it's not about you and I like oh, yeah okay I was making it all about me and when you got a picture of lots of associates around you on the wall you go this job isn't about me this is a job this job's about them and it sounds corny, but uh, that goes with the inverted pyramid. I'm, you know, my job is to make their job easier because they're the ones who are making the customers happy. And that's, I think that's incredibly powerful. And, and one of the things as we kind of help organizations like analyze their culture, one of the things that we often ask is like, ask employees, what are the things, what are the behaviors that are celebrated or rewarded in this organization and so many times people don't know or they say I don't know or it's a hundred different things and I think that that lack of clarity on what is it I'm, I mean that you in, intuitively know okay in this organization these are the at least that there would be one thing that would cl clearly be a winner or, or two or three things that would yeah. well, my my signature on that one is I I ask people to show me their HR announcement on the last promotion they gave. 
And more often than not, that HR announcement reads, well, you know, Tobias was five years, he was assistant director of blah, blah, blah. And then he spent five years as full director of blah, blah, blah in Poughkeepsie. And then he spent another five years in NIAC doing da, da, da. And what you get is just sort of a bureaucratic progression and you're left with, okay, so this is like a prison system. Tobias has done his job and his time. Instead of, I'm going to give you a description of some amazing things that Tobias did. And everybody goes, oh, okay. That's that. I got it. I know, Frank, that you would not uh, probably say this of yourself, but but reading others' accounts of you uh, and 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 hearing your story, you strike me as a as a humble and and kind of servant, values driven leader. And I think, how do you stay grounded in? your values amid the massive pressures and challenges of leading large organizations. And I think, I mean, right now we're, we, we are, and I guess we always are, but there's a lot of tumult going on within the world. There's talks about recession. We have wars. My, my wife is Ukrainian, so that's something that's very oh, close wow. to us. But so, and, and, and I think also just the sense of that it is very easy to kind of let Uh, let it get to your head uh, that you suddenly start thinking about yourself as very important and you kind of lose those those important values and that important perspective that we've been talking about. What are, what are your kind of ad your advice for leaders? Uh, gosh, that's a tough one. I mean, I'd say, um, you know, there are lots of, I, the first thing is, you know, the first thing is I'm not that humble. Uh, you know, I I feel like I feel like there are some things I know I do well, and there are lots of things I know I don't do well. Probably it goes back to I've had a lot of con candid feedback about what I do well and what I don't do well. Um, I I think it's um, I so I would maybe the better way to say this is if I were to if if I were to ask if I were to answer the question of of the one of the most important characteristics of a leader, uh, it is endless curiosity. And I think um, that's why, you know, your podcasts, other podcasts are so great because people can feed their curiosity about what people are doing. And as long as you just keep open to the idea that you're never going to hit a position where you don't need to be constantly learning, That keeps you pretty, I don't know if it's humble is the word, but it just it just reminds you, hey, in the scheme of things, you don't know a hell of a lot. There's a hell of a lot more to learn. I don't care what you're doing. There's a hell of a lot more to learn. And you tend to learn better if you start with the, boy, I got a lot to learn. Um, and that's... And I and I and I think that's just a real state. We all have a lot to learn. It's why presumably you got great listeners who listen to your podcast, and great clients who hire, because they go, I got a lot to learn. Frank, thank you so much for your time. And and lastly, I just wanted to ask you, what are ways that people can connect with you? I know you have a, a podcast called Crazy Good Terms and and like what are Some other ways that you would like people to to connect with you? Uh, that's about the only thing public that I do, Tobias. And thank you for referencing it. I have this podcast that kind of pivoting off of my experience at Home Depot. Celebrate, try we try to celebrate people who do great things for others. That's so it's crazygoodturns.org. So that's that's about it. Thank you so much, Frank. All right. Thank you, Tobias. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Frank Blake. And if you did enjoy it, please take the time to share it with others, rate and review it and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get these conversations out to so many more people. A key takeaway for me is the idea that senior executives need to absorb complexities and deal with values dilemmas instead of pushing them on their employees. 
Frank gave examples on how our incentives so often can conflict with the values we say our company believes in. In the next episode of the podcast, we'll dig even deeper into this theme, featuring a conversation with economics professor Uri Gnisi, author of the fascinating book, Mixed Signals, How Incentives Really Work. I'm sure you will enjoy that conversation as well. However, before we end, I asked one more question to Frank that we chose to cut out from the main conversation to keep the story more succinct. There's been significant reckoning in recent years with the legacy of the late Jack Welch, the former CEO at General Electric's. While some still see him as a business icon, his cutthroat leadership style has increasingly come into question through books like The Man Who Broke Capitalism, and if you ask me, rightly so. Since I knew that Frank worked closely with Jack, I couldn't miss the chance to ask him about his perspective on Welch's legacy. As you will hear, Frank defends parts of Welch's leadership style and what he learned from reporting to him. However, I also find it interesting to see how Frank, during his tenure at the Home Depot, chose a leadership style that diverged quite drastically from Welch's. But now, let's play the clip. Of course, Jack Welch has been uh, seen as this icon uh, in, 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 in the business world. And I, I would say that over the last years, I think there's been a bit more questioning in terms of the kind of cutthroat leadership style and, and whether some of that, if it, if it works as well and if it gives the type of results that you actually want to see and if it is actually really beneficial to the culture of the company, is, is, do you have any, any reflection on that? Sure. Uh, and I have... Um... So I am I am uh, I'm a very big admirer of Jack Welch's and feel like his legacy is somewhat misunderstood. Uh, and I will give you an example of it. Um, and he was a very tough boss. Don't misunderstand. He was a really difficult, demanding boss. Uh, when I became CEO of Home Depot, one of the first things I did was call Jack and said, would you spend a day with me? just sort of explaining, because while I had worked for him, I'd never really thought, how does he run this company? How does he think about it? So, and he was very gracious and he spent a day with me. And I did that every year of the eight years that I was CEO of Home Depot. I, there'd be a day in February, right around when we're talking now, and I'd fly to Florida where he lived and we'd spend a day. The last year, I asked him a question that honestly I wouldn't have asked if, I was going to be hanging around because it was a little bit, you know, sort of a sophomore question. I said, what is in your mind, Jack, the single most important characteristic of a great leader? What's the single most important thing for a great leader? And his answer shocked me. He said, generosity. And I think my face betrayed my shock. <laughs> I said, whoa, well, that's an interesting answer. I didn't expect that. Why do you say that? And he said, every great leader is fueled by the success of the people who work for him or her. Every great leader is fueled by the success of those who work for him or her. And when I rewound my tape of my time at GE, that actually made sense that while I got some of the most devastating criticisms that I've had in my professional career. I also started to remember the times when he was genuinely thrilled that I was doing something better and how important that was to me. You know, he was in the habit of, you know, you know writing notes in a big black marker, you know, kind of well done or something. And, and, how important and formative those were to me. And so I think, so So I'm gonna veer off on something here just cause I read it over uh, last weekend. Somebody, I like these sort of conceptual four blockers and imagine a four blocker where on one axis you have degree of caring, 
And on the other axis, you have degree of candid feedback. So if you have, you know, no caring, no feedback, you know, that's, that's indifference. If you have uh, high candid feedback, no caring, that's just obnoxious candor. The top two boxes are interesting because the top left box where you have high personal caring but no candid feedback was called in this structure ruinous empathy. And the other box, which is high personal caring, high candid feedback was where you wanna be. And I feel like sometimes we view the, you know, the people who are milder, less sharp edged as somehow better, but honestly, there's a risk of that ruinous empathy of people not telling you the truth and thinking they're doing you a favor. Jack never had that, never had that. He'd just tell you what he thought. Sometimes it was really hard to, you know, it was hard messages, but as long as there's personal caring behind it, which is sort of what, how I process all of this, I would far prefer somebody who deeply cares about my success, who's willing to tell me when I'm really screwing up, even if they're harsh about it. I feel like that makes a better ultimate outcome. And I feel like that's what's missing in the understanding of what Welch did. I have never had as blistering, as blistering discussions about my performances I had from Jack, not even close. And yet at the same time, I'd say, yeah, okay. I, as long, I, I, you know, it, it was helpful. It's weird. Anyway, so that's my, my reflection is, yes, people are revisiting it, but no, they don't really understand what it was that made Jack successful, what it was that made GE successful. And the uh, final, I'll end on this just because it's a, you know, I read lots of these books and every once a, about Jack and criticisms of him. And every once in a while, I want to say, gosh, they're missing the point. Because the other thing, you know, we went through briefly my background. All right. So I'm a lawyer. I'm a GE. And I want to tell you that being a lawyer at GE was, you know, just the bottom of the level of irrelevance. I mean, no one really wants to hear from the lawyers. They don't much care about lawyers. You know, we're there to keep them out of trouble and that's about it. And yet I internalized that the path to success at GE was going to be to disagree with the CEO and be right. Now I knew that if I disagreed with the CEO and I was wrong, that was probably going to be a disaster for my career. But I also knew that he wanted people to disagree. He actually encouraged people to disagree. He had the self-confidence to say, you can tell me I'm wrong. And that was, that was the story of my career at GE, was made from a meeting where I said, well, no, actually, that's not right. And everybody, amen. So it's way more complex. You don't get to the level of success Jack got to by being this rapacious, you know, fire everybody person that is portrayed. There is actually a lot of thoughtfulness and caring behind it that's misunderstood. That's that's awesome. And I I'm just uh, no no I'm not saying this for the interview, but but you've been reading Radical Candor by Kim Scott, and we we've had her. Wow, there you <laughs> go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We've had it had her on this podcast as well, and and talked about that that framework. So that's that's awesome. Uh, I didn't know that's who it's from, but somebody was just talking to me the other day about Kim Scott. And I didn't know what that was referencing, so I'm thrilled now that I can s close the circle. But is that not a great framework? It is, and and she uh, she and she tells this story, and she tells it in her podcast of how she had a a puppy. And 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 she was kind of letting this puppy, uh, you know, run everywhere and and do whatever. And she was out on the street, and it was like running all over. And uh, a gentleman came by, and he kind of said 
to her dog, like or no, no, she said, she she said to her, if you're not if you're not gonna like train that dog, it's gonna get killed, and 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 he said to her, clear is kind. Oh, I love that! I now I've got, I've got to read the book because I didn't know what's the book called. It's called Radical Candor. All right, excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, it really means the world to us if you would share, rate, and review it on iTunes. We're super grateful for all the five-star views and generous comments that we received so far. It really helps us take the message of purpose and integrity to a wider audience. And finally, don't forget to grab your free PDF on leadingtransformationalchange.com. See you in two weeks.